Our scripture reading for today is the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 7, verses 1 to 12. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or, Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or, if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, Do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this day that you have made and for this place that we can gather and to worship you. We pray, God, that in the hearing of your word, you would teach us, and in that learning, God, help us to obey. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, Welcome. For those of you who are new, we're working our way through the narrative lectionary. And uh, last time I mentioned that in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7 form what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's always a little bit um, frightening or it's a little bit weird um, giving a sermon on Jesus' sermon, you know, um, but I guess I have to. In the sermon, Jesus outlines a way of righteousness that is fundamentally different from the way it was understood in his time and continues to be misunderstood today. Jesus insists on a righteousness that is beyond the letter of the law, a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and calls us to check deeper into our motivations and intentions, that it's not simply about doing what you're supposed to do, that there is a deeper question 
that Jesus is pushing us to. And today, among his myriad of teachings, we hear in verse 12 a summary of all that he has taught. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, this verse, verse 12, usually gets trimmed. It gets truncated to something like, treat others like how you want to be treated. And it gets touted as a generic, universal, ethical principle for the world and is usually called the golden rule. In fact, a negative version of this, sometimes known as the silver rule, can be found throughout history in many cultures and religions. For example, the ancient Greek uh, rhetorician Isocrates wrote, do not do to others that which angers you when they do it to you. The Chinese philosopher Confucius wrote in his Analects, never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. The apocryphal Jewish book of Tobit commands, what you yourself hate, do that to no one. And the Jewish rabbi Hillel famously summed up the Torah with, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. A more modern version of this was stated by Karen Armstrong, who specializes in religious history. In a prize-winning TED Talk in 2008, she said, look into your own heart, discover what it is that gives you pain, and then refuse under any circumstance whatsoever to inflict that pain on anyone else. These variations may sound superficially like what Jesus said, but Jesus' words are radically different in two critical ways. First, Jesus' positive command to do something, to do unto others, is fundamentally different from everyone else's advice not to do something. Everyone else says, whatever you don't like, whatever is hateful to you, don't do that. Stated in the negative form, this principle essentially seeks to restrain evil and harm. I don't want someone to hate me. I don't want someone to betray me or lie to me. So I shouldn't do that to them. I won't harm you. And hopefully, you won't harm me. I have no guarantee that you will reciprocate my actions, but it's a reasonable and calculated effort on my part to prevent any sort of retaliation or revenge or hateful actions. I imagine a lot of parents have used a version of this in their child rearing with their young children. Suppose one of your kids punches another one of your kids while fighting over a toy. I know that's happened a couple of times in our household. Well, the punchee would be in complete meltdown, right? And one of the parents would have to go and soothe and try to calm down the hurting child. While the puncher, on the other hand, would probably be met first with a burst of anger and some choice words, 
And then the parent would try to kind of calm himself or herself down. And then might be able to seize that moment as a teaching opportunity. And they would say to the child something like, how would you feel if Larry punched you? It would hurt, right? So let's not do that. You don't want to get punched, so you, 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 it, it hurts. So let's not hurt other people. We don't do to others what we don't want them to do to us. And especially if we have experienced that pain, it's something that we can communicate. Now that's far, that's good as far as it goes. But do you see that what Jesus is saying is quite different? It's one thing to not punch someone, but it's an entirely different thing to proactively think of the good of the other. Rather than withholding violence because of the potential retaliation, Jesus demands that we actually take the initiative to consider how best to treat others. This is far more difficult. Eugene Peterson's translation really points this out. Ask yourself, he says, what you want people to do for you, then grab the initiative and do it for them. Grab the initiative. Not just withholding some hurtful act, but grabbing the initiative to do something good. It's a bit like the parable of the talents that Jesus tells. It's not good enough to simply bury your talents to protect it from rusting and from theft. You've got to invest, you've got to do something with what you are given. Grab the initiative. Pope Francis, in a speech he gave to the Joint Session of Congress in 2015, made this point clear. The rule points us in a clear direction. In a word, if you want security, let us give security. If we want life, let us give life. If we want opportunities, let us provide opportunities. It's not enough simply to not do something bad. Jesus calls us to a way of life, a guiding principle that actively seeks the good of others. But this, of course, is not how most people, and I would say not how most Christians live. As much as we may give lip service to the golden rule, most people do not live by it. Most people rather follow Not the golden rule, but the rule of reciprocity. The rule of reciprocity. That is, I do to you what you do to me. Not what I want you to do to me, but what you actually do to me. Put another way, I will love my friends and I will hate my enemies. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You buy me lunch, and I'll buy you lunch next time. You betray me, and I will take my vengeance on you. This is the way the world works. And most people accept this as a fair way of living. But against this mutual backscratching and backbiting way of life, Jesus calls us 
to a higher righteousness, to reframe our attitudes and actions, to do for others not what they have done for us, but what we would want them to do for us. Second, people often take Jesus' golden rule out of context to tell others to be good, to act with mercy and kindness. Now, that's, that's not bad life advice. Uh, maybe it's even good parenting. But Jesus' words are not meant to be a generic ethical code for all people. Like his other teachings, it's not just a matter of doing what's right. It's about doing what's right in the right way, with the right motivations and intentions. Listen again to the entire verse. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. That first word is really critical. So. So. It's a word that is often translated as therefore. Therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. So, or therefore, tells us that this is a concluding statement, that it rests on everything that has preceded it. What follows, that is this command to do to others as you would wish them to do to you, can only be understood in light of everything that has come before the so or the therefore, right? In a court of law, for example, you might hear a prosecutor argue a case, presenting all the evidence of guilt, and then concluding, therefore, you must find them guilty. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul spends seven chapters He spends seven chapters talking about what God has done in our human condition. Seven chapters he talks about what's wrong with us, what's wrong with the world, and what God has done in light of that. And then he gets to to, to chapter 8, and he says, Therefore, therefore now there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. That sentence only makes sense in light of the preceding seven chapters. He's built up an entire argument to get to that word, therefore. In the same way, this is the conclusion. This is the conclusion. The answer or why we have to live out this way is predicated on everything that has happened earlier in the sermon. Consider what Jesus said In the previous few verses, for example, starting with verse 7, Jesus urges us to keep on asking, to keep on seeking, to keep on knocking, not because the importance of perseverance, of course it's important to persevere, but that's not his point. His main point in urging us to keep on is because of who God is. He asks, which one of you, If his son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. If he asks for fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Even if you aren't a parent, it would never occur to you, I hope, 
to give a child a stone when they ask for bread or a child a snake when they ask for fish. If we know how to respond to those kinds of requests, how much more, how much greater will God respond to his children? Now, you would only know that if you know the Father. If you know the character of God, God the Father who loves us. So Jesus' question here is really challenging us to examine our knowing of God. He's asking, do you know, do you trust your heavenly Father? Do you understand that you are his beloved child and that your Father, your heavenly Father, is wanting to give you good things? Therefore, you see, therefore, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Because you know the Father. Therefore, this is how God's children will act. Because God gives good gifts to you, therefore, you can ask for and receive the power to do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. Our way of living, our ethics, all that we are is rooted first from our understanding of who God is. Ethics always rises from our theology. Because God is like this, therefore, I'm going to be like this. That's our understanding of the gospel. It begins with what God has done for us. And in light of that, we respond to that. You may have heard the adage, hurt people, hurt people. Hurt people, hurt people. I think I first heard it uh, uh, in regard to the uh, ESPN documentary, um, The Last Dance, uh, about Michael Jordan and the Bulls. And um, after it came out, um, I remember hearing um, Scottie Pippen, one of his teammates, um, complaining about the way he was portrayed in that documentary. And all these articles kept saying how Scottie Pippen, because he was hurt, by the way he was portrayed in the documentary, he started lashing out at Jordan and others, right? That he was the sort of the poster child for hurt people hurting people. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not, but um, it is a truism, and I think it's tr- it is true, that people who are hurting will hurt others, whether subconsciously or consciously. I've seen this, I see that all the time, in small ways and in big ways. And I know that I've done my share of hurting others when I've been hurt. And I think Jesus is telling us here something just the opposite. He's saying, loved people love people. Right? If if hurt people hurt people, he's telling us those who are loved can love. I know this is also true. The more secure you are in being loved by God, the more assurance that you have of that, the more freely you are able to love others. That really is the root of our motivation. And I think that is at least a part of what the therefore, the so, that Jesus is referring to. And I think Jesus has something larger in mind as well. Just as people leave out that first word, the beginning so of the golden rule, people also leave out the ending of what Jesus says. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law 
and the prophets. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, if you read the entire Sermon on the Mount, you'll see that Jesus mentions the law and the prophets a little bit earlier in chapter 517, where he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, biblical scholars always talk about what they call the inclusio, where you have an important phrase like the law and the prophets at the beginning, and then you have it at the end. So they form a kind of literary bracket. It's a way of saying everything in between is a part of one piece. Right? So one of the ways we can read the Sermon on the Mount is we have sort of this, the beginning with the Beatitudes, and then the, the main body of the sermon is starting with chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus says the law or the prophets, and then he talks, he gives a sermon, and then he kind of ends it with verse 12, and then the rest of it is kind of the, the concluding remarks. Okay, So the, the bulk of the sermon is between chapter 5, verse 17, and chapter 7, verse 12. The law and the prophets. And so Jesus is therefore... The therefore, it's, it's really including all of that. It's his whole argument now. Not just a couple of verses ahead, but all of it, therefore. The law and the prophets refers to two parts of the Hebrew Bible. And it's really kind of a shorthand today for us. It would be the Bible. It's just another way of saying the Bible. He's saying that his concluding remark is not just a kind of the logical consequence of what he's just said but it's really all of it all of scriptures all of it can be reduced to this take home message right he boils it down because of who God is therefore treat others as you would want them to treat you another way of saying this and Jesus will say this later is love God and love your neighbors right And so you can see how this is quite different from the way that the golden rule is typically applied by the world. Usually, the world says, hey, let's just all be nice to each other. Treat others nicely, like the way you want to be treated. And again, that's fine. That's fine. The world would be a better place if we all did that. But that's precisely the problem, isn't it? Why would anyone do that? Why should anyone treat others the way they would want to be treated? Now, we can understand why you would do that, why you might be motivated to do that with your friends, with your family, those who can, you know, help you, right? With those people, yeah, maybe you would do to them as you would want them to do to you. But why would anyone, why should anyone go out of their way to grab the initiative to treat others the stranger, their enemies in this way. For me, at the end of the day, I cannot fault non-Christians for any of the choices that they make and if they completely disregard this word. For those who want to cheat, lie, and steal, I don't have a compelling reason without God why they should behave otherwise. Now, to be clear, of course, there are people who are not Christians or religious, who are incredibly kind, whose uh, actions are completely in alignment 
with the teachings of Scripture. My point is not that you cannot do good works without God, but that without God, there is no meaningful reason, no compelling appeal that I can make to live life in a particular way and especially thinking about the good of others. As the novelist Dostoevsky said long ago, without God, everything is permissible. Everything is permissible. We have no basis of judgment. But with God, not everything is permissible. And we can fault those who follow Christ because Christ demands a particular way of living. The golden rule asks of us whether or not we trust the Father and secure in that provision for us whether or not we will live with the mindset of doing to others as they would do to us. You know, the beauty of Jesus' words lies in their simplicity, their universality, their flexibility. The 19th century bishop, J.C. Ryle, says, the golden rule settles a hundred difficult points. It prevents the necessity of laying down endless little rules for our conduct in specific cases, right? Every difficult decision, you can weigh against this rule. Is this what I would want done to me? Is this how I want to be treated? You may be aware that the, uh, the hymn, Amazing Grace, was written by John Newton, who for many years was involved in the slave trade. After he became a Christian, he denounced slavery and became an abolitionist, and a year before his death, he saw the passage of the Slave Act of 1807, which outlawed the slave trade throughout the entire British Empire. In 1788, he wrote a pamphlet entitled Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade. And in it, he wrote this. I am bound in conscience to take shame to myself by a public confession, which, however sincere, comes too late to prevent or repair the misery and mischief to which I have formerly been accessory. So he makes this confession, even though he knows that it's too late. He makes it. And then he says this, I hope it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. On the cover of this pamphlet, when it was first published, beneath the title of the tract, he has the words of Matthew 7.12 written right underneath, right on the cover. He rejected slavery and the slave trade and worked toward its abolition because he became a Christian and because he applied these words of Jesus to his life. He understood that to participate in the slave trade is just antithetical to what it means to treat others as you would want them to treat you. That's how he applied those words. That's the power of this rule. I mean, if, if we were really to apply this, if we were to really live this out, it would radically transform the world as it did in John Newton's life. 
Now, I know that from where we sit, the question of slavery may seem so obvious, that it's so obviously wrong, that it's shameful that Christians took so long to do what's right. But to those who were involved, to those who were living in it, it wasn't so obvious. Many well-meaning Christians were bound by the various cultural blinders that kept them from seeing the truth. And I'm certain that future generations will look back on our time and at the very issues that's dividing the church today, and they will wonder why it was so difficult for us to see what will be for them such an obvious truth. Consider, for example, one of the issues that's dividing the church today. Masks. Right? Now, I don't know about you, but I seem to cycle through three very distinct feelings about it throughout the week. Sometimes, I just have to laugh. Because it's just so ludicrous to me that the church of Jesus Christ, the church founded upon the rock, the church upon which the gates of hell will not prevail, is being shattered by something as trivial as masks. Some people insist we must wear them, while others insist we must not wear them. I mean, it sounds like a joke. Is this really the hill upon which the church of Jesus Christ is willing to die? Then other days, I just want to cry. I find it so sad. I mean, so incredibly sad. And I'm in utter disbelief that the church, our communities of faith, are splitting over this. Now, again, I understand that masks represent something larger. But I find it so depressing that Christians now have subsumed their Christian identity under their political identity. And still on other days, it all makes me so angry. I just want to bang my head and scream. Now, I know divisions in the church are nothing new. And that this is just the latest expression of our sinfulness. And so Jesus' words remind me that as much as I may want others to understand me because I'm convinced that I'm right, I have to work even harder to more lovingly to try to understand others. At the very least, if I'm going to be obedient to Jesus, I have to listen and take seriously what others have to say. Now, this does not mean that everyone is right. This does not mean that someone's not wrong. It's only that I give them the loving attention and the respect that I would want from them. To treat them as, they would, as I would want to be treated. Now, if, if I believe, for example that two plus two equaled five, or that the earth is flat, even though I would want you to take me seriously, 
I hope you would do your best to correct me firmly, but lovingly. And my hope would be that I would be humble enough to receive that correction. Right? That when presented with a loving truth, that I would be humble enough to accept that. Can we admit that we are not gods? That we, none of us, are infallible? That none of us are experts at everything, and even the things upon which you have some expertise, that you might be wrong? And that even among experts, there can be disagreements. Can we have the humility to lovingly listen to one another and be open to correction? Let's not mistake our unfounded stubbornness as sanctified convictions. You know, I know that over the years, I've accumulated a lot of false beliefs that, and many of them I'm not even aware of. You know, just this past week, I was telling my wife with great conviction that it's very hard for a football team to beat the same team three times in one season. I was so sure of this fact. That's why I thought the Rams would beat the 49ers. Because it's very hard for one NFL team to beat the same team three times in a given season. And so when the Rams won, it reinforced my belief. Yeah, it's really hard to beat them three times because... The 49ers had beaten them twice in the season, and so they couldn't do it the third time. Yeah, it makes sense. But I learned that I was wrong, that my fact was, in fact, not a fact. I learned that if you actually look at what happened, if you look at all the times in, the, in NFL history in which a team had to play each other three times in a given season, that the majority of the time, the team that won the first two games wins the third game. It's indisputable. It's just right there in the record books. Now, I'm not glad I was wrong, but I'm glad now I know what's right. Now, obviously, this is a trivial, a frivolous example. And I know that on more consequential beliefs, it's far more difficult to let go of what we have come to believe. Right? This is why it was so hard for the Pharisees and other religious people to listen to Jesus. Because they'd come to know and to believe what they thought was right for so long. And I know that changing someone's political opinions which pose as spiritual beliefs is nearly impossible. Sadly, I've come to know that. And still... I'm bound by and find my hope in the words of Jesus. He says, listen one more time. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Do you see how the, the, the golden rule is from beginning to end, it's bracketed, it's covered 
as it were, by the word and the work of God. The first word is so, and all that God has done. And the last word is the law and the prophets. It's the word of God. The calling that we have in between, it's under the embrace of all that God has done for us. From beginning to end, we are wrapped by God's word. I think it points out to us that that command taken by itself is impossible. We cannot do to others as we would want them to do to us. It's impossible. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So confident of God's ongoing, loving, enabling care for us, we can be obedient to this word. Please pray with me. God, you have called us to know you and to trust you. And to let that knowledge, that truth, to be the rock of our living, of our being and our doing. So God, I would ask, would you make more certain in our hearts who you are, who you are for us, And in the assurance and in the joy of that knowledge, help us in faithful obedience, especially when it is difficult to do for others as we would want them to do for us. And so fulfill your word. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.